Hello and welcome to Late to It. I'm Kirsty Dool. I'm Naomi Frisbee. And this is the podcast about reading books at the right time. I don't normally do the introduction and when I do do the introduction it means that I have not got another book to talk about because uh, normally we at this point talk about what we've been reading other than the books for the podcast but all I've been reading is stuff for work and books for the podcast so I've got nothing to tell you I'm afraid. So Naomi what have you been reading on time this week? Well I, I, I am that person this week, Kirsty. I'm the person who's been reading a proof that's not out till July. So pre-orders, people, pre-orders. Um, so this is called Am I Normal? The 200-Year Search for Normal People, brackets, and Why They Don't Exist by Sarah Cherney, which is being published by Profile Books as part of their Welcome Collection. So they've already published titles from uh, Emma Jane Unsworth's After the Storm, which was about postnatal depression, Emma McBride wrote a title for them. I've forgotten what it's called, uh, a feminist piece. Um, so yeah, it's turning out to be a really interesting collection, which you'd hope from like the Welcome Collection being involved. Obviously that's the like um, science-y, uh, I want to say mental health. I mean, it's not a mental health museum, but it's got, it's got that- Medical. History. Yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> it's a really interesting museum. If you're ever in London and you get a chance to go and have a look, it's great. It is, and um, I went there once, so I just to jump in. But I, the, um, I saw a really fascinating exhibition there. This is a good number of years ago now. Um, must be six or seven years ago. I saw an amazing exhibition there um, that was all about bones, and it was bones that they'd found in London um, around. I think it was probably like digging up for Crossrail and stuff like that. And the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen in my life, just to set the tone for the podcast. Um, was they found a skeleton of what had been a pregnant woman and they mm. had the bones of the, the baby, the fetus as well, and they had them together in the case. And it was just one of the most, it was so sensitively done as well, but it was, it you know, it was just heart-wrenching. Um, so, yes, that's, sorry, that was a very happy little interlude, other than to say, yes, it's a great museum to go. That was also a very on brand interlude. <laughs> oh, so bad. Let me tell you about these bones I saw. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so this book by Sarah Cherney, who is an academic, don't let that put you off. It's written in a really accessible style. It's great. I have been waiting for this to come out since I heard it was coming. So, and I'm basically um, emailed the publicist last week and said, please can I have a copy because I really want to read it for my PhD. I will talk about it on the podcast. And he was like, we haven't got any copies yet. I can send you a PDF if you really want one. And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> and I've already read it. So that's where we're at with this. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I wanted to read it because I've got a bit of a thing about the word normal that I just think it's bollocks. <laughs> and I've thought it's bollocks for a long time to the point that the book, that the novel that I'm writing for my PhD, a previous iteration of it existed in a society where the word normal was banned because I don't think it means a fucking thing actually mm. um other than I think what people I assume that what people meant was statistically average uh, which is one of the things that Cheney says quite early on the book early on in the book that that's um what she thinks people mean she comes up with a couple of other ideas she also says we're wondering if we're healthy and we're wondering if we're like other people so they're the sort of places she starts from. And then what she does through several chapters, so this will give you a really good sort of overview. She does a brief history of normal, or, and 
basically it was a mathematical term that got co-opted so it didn't mean anything to do with humans at all um, so and then she goes through do I have a normal body normal mind is my sex life normal is this a normal way to feel which is about emotions are my kids normal is society normal <laughs> nope <laughs> <laughs> so I absolutely love this um, because she really interrogates it and she takes apart so many things. Now, some of them I'd come across before, so quite a bit of the sex chapter is about what people thought about masturbation for a long time, which if like comes up on Twitter, I think it's one of those things, isn't it, that people know will get people interested. Mm. And there yeah. other bits um, about like BMI, that I knew BMI was a load of nonsense, but she went into it a bit more than I've paid attention to before about where it came from and why it's absolute bollocks <laughs> and racist and um yeah she starts off with I mean basically when um so the bit that sort of <laughs> I was just sitting there going wow at the beginning she talks about where dress sizes come from and an average well she's talking about average heights and that's where and then that became like where dress sizes these measurements became dress sizes so the all the average measurements that we have for human beings were taken from the Scottish army in the eight I can't remember I think it's 18th century I think I'm right by saying that um it's taken from the Scottish army quite a long time ago um and that's what and like you know a tiny number of men and that's how they worked out what everybody's average height would be and then made it into clothes size. So that's why your clothes sizes are absolute nonsense and don't fit. <laughs> this is not you. Um, all this stuff that was really interesting. Oh, God, there was just so much of it. Um, stuff about school. I mean, we're going to talk about schools in a minute, but there is when she's talking about kids. One of the things she talks about is ADHD which I found really interesting because I started teaching at that point where lots of kids were being diagnosed with ADHD and being given Ritalin. And she talks a little bit about the US um, where it really exploded, of course, because Big Pharma and, you know, they were flogging it to all sorts of people, but also talking about whether it's the environment that you're being placed in that then, and, and not that she does talk about how diagnoses can be useful. And she has someone in there who says, you know, it helped me manage my condition which is great and she's not disparaging that but what she's saying is that like society's creating these conditions that then make you feel like you are not normal when it's yeah. not necessarily an abnormal uh th you know it's not your brain that's abnormal <laughs> and and the percentages of people are an amazing one which i was just going what the fuck <laughs> was um she was talking about the statistics about mental health and that whole chapter, the whole chapter, I found really interesting in this because if you remember back to the collective schizophrenia episode that we did mm -hmm. in the very first series, I talked about hallucinating and how it's quite scary, like hallucinating. And one of the things she says is that it's a very Western thing to be scared of that. If you were in a different culture, it'd be seen as a religious experience. It's bringing you closer to, to you know, whichever um, gods or belief system that you are part of so that was really interesting to see that in a different way <laughs> but the statistic that you've probably had repeated loads and loads of times is this one about one in four people will have a mental health condition at some point in their life yeah absolute yeah. bollocks it's made up <laughs> of course it is 
<laughs> so she said people who did some research into this, there were three surveys that they looked at that were cited and they couldn't find, you know, what these, like a statistic that matched. And the closest they got was one that said 23% of people had reported a mental health condition that week. So the true figures were higher. And, and what they think happened was somebody went, well, one in four sounds about right. It's not too big, not too scary. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas when you think about the alternative, and they were saying it's probably closer to 50 or probably possibly higher than that, which actually means that it's normal <laughs> yeah. to not be mentally all right or that what we consider to be mentally all right in our society. So, and, and I mean, what she boils it down to, which is what I've been saying for years, so I've been vindicated and I'm so pleased about it, is that almost everything we have created our society around comes from white, middle-class, heterosexual, cis males who have shaped society in, the, in their image or what they wanted, have used it to tell the rest of us that, you know, we're nuts or inadequate or whatever, and here we are. So I'll be at the barricades tomorrow morning. Who's joining me? Yeah, this sounds so completely up my street. I do, I think it's really uh, interesting that um, the, the stuff around like what is normal in terms of mental health, all the stuff you were just saying, I find that really fascinating because I think one of the most, you know, you know, when you feel like you've had really good advice and it's when someone said really something really obvious to you and you go, oh, yeah. And that feels like one of the most useful things someone said to me um, in terms of my children, particularly my daughter, who's 10. Um, like the most valuable lesson you can teach them is you don't have to be happy all the time. Mm. um that there's this especially and I think there's so much about this kind of toxic positivity that you see a good vibes only um no negativity all of that sort of stuff can be so dangerous because it indicates that if you're not like buzzingly happy all the time then you're in acute mental distress and actually that's not true and everyone feels sad and anxious and nervous and um low people have low moods it's it's knowing when that crosses over into something that requires medical attention you know but that yeah just and I think about that a lot like the the, the most useful thing I can teach my kids is they don't have to be happy 100% of the time yeah you'll also love the chapter on emotions then because that's really interesting because it's all about how until very recently we haven't even had the vocabulary and the Tibetans didn't have a word for emotions. So they had words for the separate emotions, but they never collectively grouped them. And they've only translated that recently because people kept asking them what the word for emotions was. So, and so it's all about how we still don't really understand them and how they work. And of course, how they've been manipulated that we know that women are hysterical, obviously, and men, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, it's just people talking out their arse. <laughs> because we don't, we don't understand it well enough for ourselves to be able to do it so yeah there is loads of fascinating stuff in it I absolutely like tore through it and we'll be going back I'm out so many pages that I'll be going back to it again and again I think that yeah it sounds absolutely fascinating I'll definitely be reading that and um just briefly what you were saying about hallucinations a book that I'm going to talk about more detail 
in our next episode because I'm reading it at the moment and I haven't finished it yet. Um, the Premonitions Bureau. Um, that just what you said about one of the most highly reported incidents of premonitions, and I'm using air quotes, which you can't see me do, um, <laughs> was during um, I think it was ah uh, the first or second world war, and I can't remember off the top of my head which it is. I will clarify. Um, where just like huge numbers of soldiers. Oh, here comes it's different cat to usual. Hello, it's the other cat. Hello. Um, huge numbers of soldiers would report seeing hallucinate like having hallucinations of giant crosses in the sky or mm. hearing the voice of their um of their best friends mm. um you know thinking or hearing something that indicated that they were about to die or and lots of people recorded these as kind of premonitions um and of course you know they were wrong the majority of the time but of course people latch on to the times that something then did happen after uh, someone had a premonition mm. um it's really interesting it just made me think about the hallucination like kind of mass hallucination like the number of soldiers that would repeat re report seeing crosses and stuff like it, that it's one of the things she starts from in the book is that thing about thinking you've heard someone call your name and you haven't you've imagined it and that, there's a whole thing, she doesn't mention this in the book, but actually it made me think about, I thought I heard my phone ringing earlier and it wasn't. And it's just that, you've heard it that many times that sometimes your brain just thinks. Yeah. Conjures it up, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I remember really clearly my mum, my mum swore blind to the day she died that she heard my brother's voice um, calling her outside the house. And he didn't live in the same, didn't even actually live in the same country as us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we were in Scotland and, and he was elsewhere. Um, but she absolutely swore blind that she heard his voice and she went to the front door and then he said, oh no, mum, I'm around here. And she'd go, she spent this time going to the front and the back door one evening. Now, she, I mean, she was also a religious woman, um, but she maintained till her dying day that that she heard my brother's voice. Of course, you know, she'd woken up, she'd just woken up from a nap. She'd fallen asleep on the sofa. And that was the first, that was the thing that woke her up. Um, as I've alluded to before, she wasn't unknown to the old drink. Um, so there were other factors as well, but she absolutely believed it. She absolutely believed it. Um, and it's exactly that, just hearing, thinking you heard voices, thinking you hear voices and, and genuinely believe in it. Mm. Anyway, to the two books we're talking about this week. So these are two books, it's non-fiction, both non-fiction books, um, two books that are firsts in a way mm. um so the first book the first of the firsts that we're going to talk about is black box by shiori ito which is translated from the japanese by alison mark and powell it was published by tilted access in the uk uh in 2021 2021 uh, it was originally published um in the us this translation um by the feminist press and it was originally, originally published in Japanese in 2017. Uh, this is a book about uh, an aspiring journalist who uh, went public on, um, uh, went public with a, an accusation of, of rape against a very prominent television journalist, a, like a political reporter. Um, and it was about the sort of police investigation um, into that attack 
And then the other book we're going to talk about is Black Teacher by Beryl Gilroy. Now, this was originally published in the late 70s, 1979, I think. Um, but this was reissued by Faber again last year in 2021. And this is about um, it's her story of being certainly one of the first black teachers and one of the first black head teachers. She went on to become a head teacher in Britain. Um, and it's a just a snapshot of the time that um, she was becoming a teacher. Well, she, she trained elsewhere, but becoming a teacher in the UK and, and working her way up. But let us start with Black Box. Uh, now, uh, massive trigger warning for this book. This uh, talks in a lot of detail about rape and sexual assault and the aftermath of that, both physical and emotional. So um, I will... I will put that there. If you if you don't wish to hear about this, then do uh, skip us on. This is about a, an investigation into um, a sexual assault that uh, Shiori Ito um, said had happened in uh, 2015, I think, that a um, senior television journalist had taken her out for um, dinner on the basis of giving her advice about her journalistic career, about talking to her about opportunities in the kind of Washington Bureau of uh, the Tokyo Broadcasting Corporation. Um, but what actually happened is she woke up very disorientated the next morning to discover uh, this journalist um, raping her, that she had no memory, she'd lost a huge amount of her memory last thing she remembers is having um, a couple of drinks in a in a uh, bar and having sushi and stuff. And then the next thing she wakes up um, and she is being raped, basically, by uh, this guy. And she manages to extract herself and get out of the hotel. She's physically um, injured um, and obviously mentally um shocked and what have you and this book then follows her dealing with the aftermath making the decision to make a complaint to the police trying to get the police case put through um advocating for him to be arrested and it's just all the millions of roadblocks that she comes up against and the reason it's called black box is because the police told her that that's what her case was her case was a black box it had happened behind closed doors and was therefore unprosecutable so you know for this to for her to go public with this and then she, the time she went public and the time the book came out was just at the same time that the me too stuff started happening in the harvey weinstein so this became a sort of talismanic story i think for a lot of people i get the sense in in japan of the, the first time a Japanese woman has sort of waved her anonymity and spoken very publicly about her case. It's pretty shocking, though. It's really it's shocking. Really and I just want to start with this black box idea because I read it and it says it can't be prosecuted because it happened behind closed doors. So I am assuming then that if I murder someone I don't like very much behind closed doors, then they can't investigate it. Oh, it's total hypocrisy, like just the most rank hypocrisy. I'm sure, you know, that I'm sure it only applies to to sexual crime because mm. 
you know that's what they just keep saying is they can't they can't find evidence for it so therefore it's he said she said yeah and I think the thing that I mean there's lots of really shocking points in this but I think the the thing that unravels throughout it is how much it's being covered up at the very top so she uncovers a big spoiler spoiler for the end if you don't know anything about her story um that she not only uncovers the police who are trying to cover it up but it goes right up to the prime minister's office in japan because this guy is such a well-known reporter that basically it's it's not clear whether it's the prime minister or whether somebody it's it's one of the other cabinet ministers but they definitely goes to the top level that somebody has stepped in and and stopped his arrest when he's come back into the country from america and just what the fuck yeah <laughs> i mean not that i mean we know this happens but still just I, even and and i thought i started reading it thinking oh, i'm not going to find this shocking because we've heard this sort of thing like so many times which i'm not disparaging but part of me reads it and goes why do we have to keep doing this why as women do we keep having to say this thing happened to me because nobody's fucking listening and i don't mean i'm saying that is like the johnny depp amber heard trials happening at the minute domestic violence trial and that just seems to have turned into an absolute fucking circus and i'm like why why is this entertaining it's not entertaining um but yeah, so I, I started reading it thinking that I wasn't, that I was quite immune to it and just found it shocking again and again and again. And that sort of, yeah, that level of corruption by the end had just had got me going, what on earth? Yeah, I felt exactly the same as you. I felt, I thought going into it, you know, we were talking about a book the other week where, um, oh, it's you talking about Paradise uh, mm. by Fernando mm. Melkor, where, you know, we can read something and obviously it's it's impactful but you can tell it will have a much bigger impact in in the sort of country that it's set in yeah um and maybe the impact is slightly less for us because we're slightly more used to things or we've heard certain things or certain stories have been told um and I slightly went into this book expecting the same thing um about sort of Japan you know we have this idea certainly in the west that you know Japanese society is very buttoned up and very proper and everything is on social standing and you respect your elders and you know and so I could well imagine that a woman I mean a woman going public about sexual assault and sexual abuse as we have seen unfortunately in the UK and America is still a terrifying um shocking you know people will still disparage them and and what have you but I feel like that would be multiplied even more in Japan. Um, and so like you, I sort of wasn't expecting to be shocked by some of the things that I read, but I was staggered by some of the stuff. I mean, partly the fact that she is essentially having to conduct her own mm-hmm. um, investigation for a lot of it. She stays in email contact with him, uh, with the perpetrator for a huge length of time because she's trying to ex- extract a confession out of him and she's told the police and she's told a lawyer that she's done that um and at one point even the investigator that's assigned to her case sort of goes well actually maybe it would be best if you email him because we can't do anything but phone we can't use his we can't contact him via email we can't contact him via facebook you know we can't do anything but ring him and he's not at home essentially so actually you're probably best doing it but you know keep us posted 
staggering. And then the most shocking bit, I think, and massive trigger warning for this, um, when the police do start investigating it, they take her to a, um, a judo hall mm. and in front of a room full of male police officers, she is made to lie down with a life-size doll and recreate the attack, which is just the most staggeringly horrific thing I think I've ever heard. Yeah, that that was a point where I'd stop reading because I was just and put it down for a bit because I was just like, how can you put anybody through that? And and they talk about, don't they? There's a so ju- the there are some journalists who say they're going to help and then do it, and that appears to be part of the whole cover up. But there are another group of journalists who do help her, um, and they talk about how that's that's just another rape, essentially, yeah. because you know being made to. Re- I mean, what that would do to someone with PTSD is horrific. I can't even imagine. I cannot even imagine. It's it's so um, humiliating and shows such a total disregard for the victim. Um, and then they're asking her questions like, oh, was it more like this or was it more like that? You know, it's just, I mean, beyond, beyond anything I could imagine in terms of how horrific that must have been for her. Um, yeah. In, in terms of the police investigation, goes right back to the point where she tries to go to the police station and report it, and asks for a female officer and gets gets a traffic person after she's just spent two hours telling them everything, and she just has to repeat. As and I mean, I know, I know people talk about this. Uh, this is not exclusive to Japan, but the way that she has to repeat the story again and again and again, and then someone else gets taken off her case, and she has to tell someone else, and then she has to tell a lawyer and. Oh God, I was I, I felt worn down and yeah. I was the person having to relive it again and again and again. Yeah, absolutely. It's just exhausting. And it comes across in the tone of the book because at first I found the tone, the tone of the writing quite stilted. But actually, the more I read, I realized that it was sort of completely appropriate because it it did just underline that reiteration of the facts over and over and over again and you know this is in a sense the book is just another group of people that she's told with with about what happened um it's done quite journalistically as well and even in you know that the, the book is set up into into sections rather than I mean there are chapters but within that there are headings and sections and headings, you know, it's like all, you know, like a newspaper article. Mm. Yeah, I think, I thought that uh, what a family had to say were quite, was, I was going to say interesting then, maybe not. I think because they were quite, they were supportive until the point when she wanted to come out and talk about, you know, rescind her anonymity. And then I think they all sort of fell out with her at that point. But when she's first... Um, when she's first reported it and she doesn't tell him to start with but eventually when she tells him um, her dad tells her from a place of love I think um, you've got to act more like a victim and because she's she's not crying hysterically and all of that and then mm-hmm. just a few pages later she um, goes in to be examined and the gynecologist tells her that there's no damage and she points out that, like, you know, there might not, it might have 
physically she might have healed quickly, but that's not the reality of the situation. And, and I think what you were saying about the tone there and the language of it, it's just so matter of fact that actually it hits harder than it would have done if it had yeah. been in, in a sort of more flowery style or whatever. Yeah, I completely agree. I think I realised that, you know, the, the more I got into it, I realised that actually it was exactly the right tone for the book because it was just sort of devastating in its matter-of-factness and all the, the transcripts of all the emails that she sends um the uh, the perpetrator mm. are just I mean devastating to read especially where he sort of finally addresses her accusations um because before that she's he sort of tried to obfuscate as like well you know are you still interested in this job and trying to write it off as you know nothing in particular um and then he sort of goes from sort of being in in sort of denial to I will I'm basically I'm going to take you down mm. sort of thing and that that switch felt really shocking like the speed of it yeah, and there's that email where he, he comes back and he, in quite, like, detail, he addresses what she's been saying to him and keeps telling us to calm down. Yeah. And at that point, I would just like, God, if you were in front of me, I'd punch you right now. <laughs> that's, that's how calm I feel. Yeah. <laughs> just Yeah. Just this constant paternalism, like this kind of paternalistic, the men know best, listen to the men. And all the way along, the police are asking her, are you sure you want to pursue this? Are you sure you don't just want to settle out of court? You know, she was offered a sort of laughable um, settlement offer, um, which she turned down. And, um, you know, all the way along, she's being asked, are you sure you want to do this? Like, are you sure? You know, we can't really do it. This isn't going to go anywhere. Don't do it. Um, and so for her to kind of just keep going doggedly, um, I just think rather astonishing um and in fact she was then later named a time person of the year um for the work that she'd done in it wasn't person of the year it was one of time magazine's 100 most influential people of the year in in 2020 it says shiori ito has forever changed life for japanese women the article read i wonder if that's really true i understood perhaps for the first time that we must continue this progress this forward momentum together um, it's you know she's she's been so sort of alone in this like literally and metaphorically she's been so alone that it almost she doesn't I don't think sort of quite grasp until the Time magazine thing happens that she isn't and she's one of a number and she's she's sort of ended up sort of slightly spearheading this this movement in a way. Yeah, she talks about actually how many messages that she gets mm. after she goes public, which starts to show you the, the scale of the issue. And I think you mentioned before we started recording, there's a, a bit where she has the league table for uh, reported rapes around the world and Sweden is top and we're third, which mm. I found surprising as well as you did, because we're absolutely fucking useless at prosecuting rape cases. Um, yeah. So surprised at how many people report it because she, she, she was saying she was questioning, wasn't she, what you might think when you s saw it because she's like, does Sweden real? Does Sweden really have the highest number of rapes in the world? 
or is it just that women feel safer to be able to report that they've yeah. been raped and even then it's probably like a only a percentage that do yeah absolutely and and japan was sort of way down the bottom mm. of 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 that table i was really shocked that the uk was by which they mean england and wales um uh legal jurisdiction um was third highest i i'd found that staggering as well um yeah I'm, I'm really glad i read it it's i think it's it's a i feel like sometimes books are called important as a kind of it's like mm-hmm. books being called urgent and vital mm-hmm. um important but i think this is genuinely important yeah i, I think not just because of that sort of cultural implication that it had in Japan. But again, I'm going to go back to where I started, that fucking cover-up, which, yeah. is, you know what I mean? And lots of it, when I was thinking about it, even when things aren't covered up, so, you know, we could talk about Chad Evans, the footballer, or mm. Brett Kavanagh, or, you know, I mean, insert whichever name you want in there, all these men who, you know, who, who might stand trial or, you know, be... Well, Kevin didn't stand trial, did he? But you know, was um, had to listen to testimony before before he got his job, which is now yeah. using to try and overturn Real versus Wade. Do you know what I mean? It's back to that again, isn't it? It's that all these these men who effectively get away with it, even if it, there's no career ruin, ruining going on. It no. really bollocks. It's like, this is why I was mentioning earlier the. Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, like Johnny Depp's career and un- suffered. Yeah, he got knocked off a film or two, but you know, <laughs> Johnny Depp's money's gone because Johnny Depp pissed it up the wall. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and there's all this, oh God, the amount of like, you know, purse I've seen defending him. And I'm just like, oh my God. Oh, so yes. And I just thought she was incredible actually to have done what, what she, how terrifying it must have been. Yeah. to wave her anonymity and to stand up against she was standing up against institutions not just you know the manipulator yeah. the, the highest echelons of power in the country you know um and to the point where the the original place that she wanted to do her press conference wouldn't allow her to have it there mm. um I had to do it somewhere else um and there was all these kind of memos going around saying to journalists don't go you know, don't go to the press conference, it's not a story. Of course, you know, thank God some of them did. Yeah. Our other first um, then is uh, Black Box by Beryl Gilroy, which, as I said, was originally published in uh, 1979 and then reissued last year, 2021, um, by Faber, with a new introduction by Bernardine Evaristo. as we said, this is um, Beryl's memoir of her life in Britain between moving here in the 40s or 50s, 50s um, up until the time of the book's publication in the 70s, having progressed from, she, she, she was from what was then called British Guyana, it's now Guyana. Um, she had trained as a teacher, she had then come to Britain, she'd come to England. Um, and wanted to become a teacher here and this is her memoir of struggling to become a teacher, her experiences of being a teacher, her experiences of um, interacting with 
the children and the parents of the children, as well as other people around her, and going on to become, um, if not the first, certainly one of the first black head teachers in England, in Britain. Um, I was particularly interested, I mean, I wanted to read this anyway, because I, I'd heard it, I'd had it recommended. I was particularly interested uh, for us to do this, because as mm -hmm. regular listeners will know, uh, Naomi trains teachers <laughs> and is a former teacher. So I was particularly interested to see um, what you thought of it. Um, as you said before we started recording, I think we'll end up coming at this from quite different angles, um, because obviously you're trained in education and so you have a more theoretical understanding of education and learning than than I do um but I was also just reflecting as I was reading it um about me as a pupil and I <laughs> own my own children now um who are both primary school and she's a primary she's an infant school teacher primary school teacher um my children are primary age she seems to be largely teaching sort of around seven eight years old the vast majority of the kids she's teaching um yeah and I was also ended up thinking of myself about myself as the parent um <laughs> yeah because the parents don't normally come across that well <laughs> it make me worried about am I one of those parents um yeah so what do you think <laughs> Not about me as a parent don't tell me. oh I, I almost don't know where to start I had loads of different things that I, I thought about I thought actually at the heart of it she was a very good teacher and very forward thinking for her time I thought and I thought there was a distinction between so when I start I want to say when I started reading it the first chapter Oh, I found really frustrated because she goes straight into she's the head at this school um, and she doesn't like it. She doesn't like the school. And I was like, it's your fucking job to set <laughs> like, you know, as the head, you set the term for the school. What are you doing? Um, and then as I got further in, I mean, she'd not been there very long, so that's possibly not very fair, but still. Um, and as I got further in and she went through her career, it did it did transpire that she was she loved the kids she she all the things that were sort of that came in that were like trendy that we're supposed to you know we were supposed to start doing as I started teaching were things she's doing instinctively so she talks about how she is a partner in learning that she's not so when she trained in the system that she's in there, it's all very much rote. You stand at the front, you give the textbooks out, you tell them what to do, blah, blah, blah. And some people recognise that from their school days. Mm. It's not how I do it. Um, and it's not how she does it either. She says she's a partner in learning and that she, you know, she is responding to the needs of the kids. Um, and she talks a lot about how much they use play, which is, you know, quite a big thing in um, primary Particularly at the minute, I think we should have more of it in secondary. <laughs> People mm. are shooting me down for that, but I do. Um, uh, what else? Um, oh, she talks about there's a there's a brilliant bit, and teach, some teachers, if, if they're listening to this, are going to be horrified. But she is spot on. She talks about how she teaches the kids to take responsibility for their own learning and to assess their work. And she points out that children of that age can, can assess. And I have had so many heated discussions about this, about whether 
it's right whether kids can be accurate with it la 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 la. I have taught loads of kids to assess their own work and they've done really well because it gives them an understanding of what they're doing like they're seeing it from a different perspective and it just it's doing it well you have to be able to do it well and, and know that like you know it takes time and you have to have a good relationship with the kids and all of that and she fundamentally understands that even though that's not how she's been trained to teach so I found all of that sort of classroom thing fascinating and the other bit I just wanted to read this bit because this properly amused me so she goes into this school it's one a friend of hers is the head teacher and they're in the shit because staff keep leaving and he um asks her to come in and she's like no 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 no. next minute she's in there because he's desperate <laughs> and, and she's been on maternity leave and doing other things since then um and she clearly wants to get back in a classroom so so she goes and part of this made me laugh like it's because it's so different now i mean literally she rocks up even when she's sent you know there's a it's the fact that she is sent from a central office it's almost mm -hmm. like in england it's almost like our supply teachers work in some other countries uh, like i'm sure this is still the case in northern ireland it certainly was when i was over there but that's like 10 years ago um you were assigned which school you went to you didn't get a choice um, and i know some countries still do that it's sort of centrally organized and so she's at a time when that's still happening she goes to the borough office in london they send her off um wherever wherever there's a vacancy but at this particular time she um yeah she goes to her friend's school so she gets shown to this classroom with 35 seven and eight year olds in it the floor was littered with wax crayons over which some boys skated and danced a fattish boy stood on his desk bellowing for no apparent reason through a halo which he'd made from a large map. Some children threw paper darts while others simulated aeroplanes by running round with arms outspread and noise to match. A few children drummed on the desks. Others whacked books with rulers. A tall slim boy ran around with his trousers down to the delight of a small group of girls. In the midst of all the disorder, a little girl lay quietly asleep with her head on the desk. Some children just wandered around aimlessly, stopping now and then to strew books or pencils on the floor. The whole class welcomed me with a crescendo of catcalls and war cries. And she goes on to say, simply couldn't use size to subdue them. They were conditioned like the rest of the world to accept a hierarchy of size, strength and aggressiveness. I am only five feet, two inches tall anyway. <laughs> and she does eventually end up with a really good relationship with them. But what it made me think of was I have heard so many times about how much worse kids are getting nowadays that primary kids are worse than they ever were and la 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 and then I read that set you know what 50 60 years ago and it's no different <laughs> no no of course not um I think the thing that really struck me about her relationship with the kids is just how consistently she meets them where they are like mm -hmm. she she and that's something I feel really strongly about in terms of you know how kids are taught now and how my kids are taught um you know it's it's meeting kids where they are and not forcing them to act in a certain way or do a certain you know it's it's that sort of giving them some sort of autonomy um and working with them you know not against them or at them you know teaching at people you know I had teachers like that um I definitely had teachers like I remember one particular history teacher 
who was just, I mean, would just stand at the front and talk for 50 minutes, which when you're 12 or 13, is just, that's not going to engage anyone. But yet we had another history teacher um, who, when we were all, like, I'd had my higher, which is sort of like A-level Scottish qualifications, um, my higher history teacher who would t- talk to us about inflation and measure it in pints and how many <laughs> how many pints you could drink on five quid and still have like enough for a fish supper on the way home in different years you know because when you're 16 17 it feels like funny and illicit the teacher's talking about alcohol um but he knew how to engage the kids and that was you know fun and people engaged with it and there was banter back and forth and so people tried you know you could see kids tried harder for him because he got on with them and met them where they are and I I felt like she was doing that consistently um and to talk about one of the main themes throughout the book unsurprisingly the racism she faced was horrific absolutely staggeringly awful um I mean this is 1950s 1960s 1970s uh which is not to say that racism has been cured I think we all know that it has not been um but the just the casualness the the kind of the racial epithets the the abuse the you know oh I don't you know the the number of jobs she was turned down for Mm -hmm. Um, the struggle to even get into teaching in the first place, you know, parents saying to her quite openly, you know, I don't want a black teaching my child, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Throughout it, you know, the kids and the kids, the kids love her as well. Mm -hmm. There's this really wonderful bit where she's gone on maternity leave um, and a no. load of kids all turn up to meet her. She thinks she's only going to meet a couple of them, and like half the class turn up and they end up in her back garden. It was beautiful. But these same kids are parroting stuff that they have heard at home from their parents, from their families, from, from adults. You know, what, what my mum says about black people, you know, um, and she has the um the grace and the fortitude to understand in that moment that it is not the children it is the parents it is the adults around them that are that's what they're picking up that's what they're parroting and she she doesn't think for a second that that's what the kids actually believe they're just saying what they heard and I am sure that how she engaged with them will have given at least some of them the kind of critical apparatus to be able to hopefully separate themselves out from that sort of those attitudes um that are being passed down I thought as well not just when she was in school but there's a point where she can't get a job and she ends up working in this office with all these other women and there's there's a whole bizarre thing with them where like they've become friendly with her but Mm. then won't be seen with her Another yeah. one of them eventually invites her to a wedding um which is really quite lovely but yeah some of the others are just like, oh yeah I could be friends with you but my husband can't see see me with you because you know yeah. and, and that sort of like you know fear of what had happened um, yeah one of them rings some money on the pools and, and moves to a nicer area and she's like you know no offense but don't come visit me you know it won't it won't do for the neighbors to see you me associating with you like just blatant you know mm. We we talk a lot now about 
um, microaggressions and people people don't say things out loud, um, but they'll imply it with certain actions and behaviours. There were no, this was all macro. This is fully macro <laughs> the whole time. Mm. Um, and I just can't imagine how wearing that must have been for her. Um, but also to see it from, you know, she, she talks later on about uh, teaching in more multicultural schools and all the different groups are saying it about each other. Like yeah. it's just, you know, it's constant. And she talks about when she ends up in a, like more middle class, there's, there's like more middle class uh, kids, then the way that they imply that she's not that clever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this, and this is like not to equate class and race, but I totally got this when I moved to London as well. I totally got it from the middle class parents that I was not bright enough to teach their kids because I'd got a Barnsley accent. <laughs> what? I, I actually remember one of my, it was one of my university lecturers actually um, at, at Glasgow, uh, one of my literature lecture literature lecturers. And I remember him talking, he had a really broad Glaswegian accent, like really, really strong Glaswegian accent. And I remember really clearly him talking about, you know, no one, because he was he was of a kind of senior professor level to the point where he was occasionally asked to go on the radio and talk about, you know, James Joyce or whatever. Um, and he talked about how people were not expecting what came out of his mouth to come out of his mouth. He was like, professor, are you sure? Like, mm. Talking of which, seeing as we've got on the accent thing, I do have to yeah. talk about though because it irritated me. So she renders the accents mm. on the page and they are quite stereotypical. Ooh, <laughs> a little bit jarring. I don't mind saying it does, it, it does leap out the page a little bit. Yeah, and I've, you know, there's a big thing about some people hate it when people put accents on the page. And I don't, like, I think that there's a place, there's very much place for them. I started to wonder whether the only way to do it is to go full on Irving Welsh, James Kelman, like, immerse yourself, um, write it all uh, that way. But I think, actually, it's probably more to do with, there's, a, there's subtler ways to do it, I think is what I'm trying to say, where you can do it with grammatical ticks rather than... You know, call by me, governor. <laughs> Here's some tripe. <laughs> me, all that. I, I just like was, oh my God. And my boyfriend grew up in London um, in the 70s and I would just like, if I show him this, <laughs> he'll flip his lid. <laughs> yeah, no, I have to, yeah, that is one thing. Um, and I was slightly waiting for it because in fact, Bernadine Evaristo references the accents on the page in her introduction in the book. And, and she says that, um, you know, she obviously didn't find it. She, she found it added something to the book, but I'm sure that I, I some of it was quite, I, I, the thing is, the, the, and I, this might just be me, I am willing to admit. Um, but whenever I see accents rendered on the page, I have, a terrible habit of just imagining myself trying to do those accents <laughs> and even in my own head I butcher them <laughs> so it gets really distracting so I just get me in like Mary Poppins mode all right governor uh, bad times bad times just awful Kirsty Dick Van Dyke duel yeah <laughs> Dick Van Duel. We have to talk about, I think this is a like, perfect moment to talk about Lady Anne. 
Oh my god. She's staggering. She's like this cartoon character. So I, I guess we should explain that she's she is this you know aristocrat who takes <laughs> who picks and chooses the students that she wants to like look after and introduce to society and all of that. And she has some wild ideas. <laughs> oh God, yeah, she's very much sees herself as this wonderful benefactor and goes take these these colonial children and and show them the wonder of Britain and then she gets really offended when um the people start sort of arguing with her about empire and Britain and how you know maybe it's maybe it's not that great um and she and then she'll just like call them some horrendous you know horrendous racist term and then change her mind and go oh no he's actually quite a nice young man um it's really like she's she is she's like a character straight out of central casting of that sort of <laughs> um British aristocrat that kind of prides herself on having an interest in abroad interest in the colonies um but you know she absolutely sees herself as this kind of civilizing force and Beryl Gilroy goes to work as a maid for her and just it's just staggering the stuff she comes out with yeah, she, she has interesting ideas about the Irish <laughs> as well. Oh, everyone. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's sort of equal opportunities in its offensiveness. Like, there's, <laughs> there's, there's not a group that gets away unscathed. <laughs> yeah, I, could, I, I kept picturing her as Maggie Smith, though, which is, I'm sure, a massive disservice to Maggie Smith. But she is the sort of characters that she plays. I was just like, stick her in doubt and see how that gets. That, that's yeah, like, from there. absolutely. Um, the bit that gutted me though was so she talks quite a lot about the parents and and not just not just the parents with their horrific views although there is the and yeah oh so I guess a couple of things here sorry I'm just I've interrupted myself because my brain's going <laughs> and this thing and this thing and this thing one of the things that I thought was really interesting when she talks about their prejudices was she talks about their prejudice be, that comes out of their own experiences at school which is something that like every teacher will tell you that we've experienced that, you know, parents who uh, had, had horrible times at school or are afraid of coming to school and like totally intimidated by parents' evenings and mm. behave in all sorts of ways. I've like, I've seen parents kick off at parents' evenings and it's, and it's because they don't know how to handle it because they couldn't handle their own, you know, their own school experience was difficult or, mm. you know, and it just, it, it's a trauma response, I guess, to an extent that yeah. you know, they found it so difficult that they can't then manage or they just don't come, they choose not to come and, you know, all sorts of things happen. So yeah, she talks about that and that's really interesting. I think she's, she's got quite like not having, I mean, she goes on later on um, at the end of the book, if you read through her, life she went on to do um further qualifications in psychology and she's already got the those makings there she gets it like sort of instinctively mm. when she's in school and there's one parent who sort of stands because she talks about how they come to the classroom and parents do this now I mean not in secondary particularly like kids would be too embarrassed but I know at primary like you know you get the all parents are all there and some of them will come and chat every every day and some of them are stood further away and and mm. you know speak to them and 
all that sort of thing. And anything happens, there's always one parent who's there the minute <laughs> anything's happened. Um, yeah. And she talks about this woman who's got twins who just stands there with her head down and she never looks at them. She just sort of drops them off. And then one day she comes in to speak to her and she tells her that the twins are the products of incest because her dad's raped her. Mm. And just, it is heartbreaking. Like the whole, I could picture her, the whole description of this woman and how she holds herself and how she feels about what so she's carrying all this shame and thinks that the kids are products of sin because of it and that she hopes that you know Beryl can can give them something that she can't and it is just gutting absolutely yeah that's the point where I had to put it down and step away for a bit because it's just heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking and all I could think about was um you know this will be happening and this will still be happening today. There will be those, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I, I remember you could have referenced before when we've been talking about reading fiction and, you know, what our red lines are in terms of fiction. And you've always said that fiction's fine because when you would, you know, you heard a lot worse in the real world sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that just kept coming back to my mind as I was reading it. So you think this is the stuff she's put in the book. There'll be stuff that isn't even scratching the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I saw a, tweet the other day that I, I nearly responded to and thought do I really want to put this on Twitter probably not uh, so now I'm talking about it in a podcast <laughs> where it'll stay for longer um, but somebody had tweeted about how their school experience that things weren't good at home and they had a particular teacher and they wished that this teacher had adopted them and I wanted and and people were commenting and going oh that people, teacher probably don't even think twice about you la 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 and I wanted to put you have no idea how many kids I wanted to take home and look after like yeah. every day every day there were kids that I was just wanted to scoop up and go you know I'll keep you safe yeah. that's why that's why I worked in schools that's why I still work with teachers because because it was a safe place for me when I was a kid yeah I actually continued to be one when I was an adult despite the fact I got bullied really badly at school but still there was something about being in an environment where I could learn and felt like I was developing and could go somewhere else if that makes sense like metaphorically I guess I mean but yeah and I want and and that's why I went back into schools because I wanted to give that to the kids you know who were having a terrible time at school or came from backgrounds where their parents didn't value education or just weren't equipped for that sort of thing I wanted to go and be able to give that to the kids and that's what she does in this book as well I think yeah, absolutely. And the, the school played the same role for me. And I had I had one of those teachers, uh, Mrs. Morning, wherever she may be now, um, who was my English teacher when I was um, uh, in my last year of secondary school. She was actually also my first year English teacher, but my sixth year English teacher as well. Um, and she absolutely provided that space for me um, to be myself and talk and you know have a bit of a to just yeah to sort of be seen and heard I suppose um and I you know I still think about I mean I left school in 1999 I still think about her pretty pretty regularly she was um she was an extraordinarily important person to me um yeah they you know teachers make a difference that sounds really facile but they do. <laughs> no it's true it's true um Oh, one bit, one bit that I was like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Only because it's something that's like, 
it's something that keeps coming up a lot actually with the um teachers that are training at the minute and actually i think it's something we'll talk about a bit more as a society maybe more in academic circles at the minute mm. but she talks about really early on that one, one of the parents who is rendered in a terrible accent <laughs> talks about how she wants the school has this hat competition for the parents and she wants to get rid of the hat competition and she's very clearly asked her that like to abolish it basically let's not do it this year because she she never wins because she's always up against more middle class parents who can spend more money or have got more time or whatever and she and Gilroy talks about how she says she assumes then that her kids will give up easily because he's, he's seen that you know if you're not going to win it you just don't do it which kids do kids do it mm -hmm. Um, but then she says, I need to give him some quick wins so he can see that it's it's worth trying. And part of me is I feel a bit conflicted about it. And it's because there's lots of conversations happening at the minute about how much we assume. And this comes up in Am I Normal as well, the book I was talking about at the beginning, about how much we assume that people should aspire to these middle class ideas <laughs> of what life should be like. Mm. And and this is one of the yeah one of the conversations we're having, particularly because I work with trainees who are in schools in disadvantaged areas. How, to what extent is it disparaging to say to the kids that your lifestyle, where you come from, is not good enough? And I know that other people, I'm sure, will recognise this. That I very much felt. I'm the only person in my family to have been to university, mm. and I very much felt not as not as as sort of um heavily now as I did at one point but really felt like I'd sort of cut myself off from my entire community and my family because people didn't understand why I'd been to university why I was a teacher what on earth I was doing that then they start to think that you know better than yourself than you do because of that fear and now I've started to talk about this Kirsty I'm wondering how much of this is about me <laughs> but yeah, like those are the conversations we're having because it, it, it's not valid to say to people that like you should, it's that idea about escaping, you need to escape where you come from. And it's like, no, you don't actually, why? why? That that doesn't, you know, those lives aren't any less valuable. It's the way that we as a society have deemed them to be so. So yeah. you know, just because I've read lots of books don't make me a better person. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And we need to you know there's there's more I know I know you shouldn't in an ideal world you don't think about it shouldn't be that you only think about things when they affect you but in reality that is what happens a lot um I as I've talked about before my youngest child is autistic and will probably at some point I would expect um be better in in specialist education than in in mainstream it's a mainstream at the moment um but I suspect at some point in his educational journey um the path will diverge as it were um and I you know I have to admit there was part of me that had to get my head around 
well, you know, maybe GCSEs and, and academics and university may not be in his future. Now, it might be. I don't know. I don't know. You know, he's only six at the moment and I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, but I had to, I really shocked myself by having to kind of reconcile that. And I've always thought of myself as, as someone that'd be like, you know, whatever is best for my kids. But I caught myself going, you know, my child isn't going to follow that path. Um, and it's been a real learning curve for me. And I, I hope I'm a better person as a result of having to kind of just go get in, the head out your arse, for God's sake. <laughs> um, but, you, you know, as ashamed as I am to admit it, that's where my brain went when it looks like, you're, you know, your kid isn't going to, to, to follow the path that you part, the, the path that you path, the path that you followed, um, which is why I'm so sort of, passionate now about coming back to what I said earlier about meeting kids where they are and you do what you do do what's best for the kids and you let them follow their own path um because I've had to give myself a proper talking to about it frankly as much as I hate admitting that um but there you go well I also think as well it's good that now places are starting to recognize that you don't necessarily need a, de a degree to do yeah like most jobs to be honest yeah so they're, they're starting to think about actually what they're asking for instead of just asking for a degree as default I know people who've done loads of different education qualifications who aren't great in work situations because that's not what they've been doing with a lot yeah, like it, it's wild to think that because you've done an academic qualification in something you'd be able to do it practically and it's one of the things actually my trainees worry about the most because even if they've got a degree in the subject they're teaching which they haven't always you go into school and what you're teaching is not what you've been studying for the last three years <laughs> and teaching's a completely different skill that was the other thing I was going to say about the book she talks about teaching being a science and this is very much a Tory thing at the minute that teaching's a science and everything has to be backed up with multiple papers and I'm like nope <laughs> <laughs> and it goes against really what she said in the rest of the book it's not a size oh it's back to what you're saying about meeting the kids and that's not science that is not science mm. that's experience with people and and if anything it's you know psychology and sociology and but more so it's just it's it's we talk a lot actually me and my boss talk about this quite a bit about instinct but actually it's instinct that's born out of years of experience that's yeah. what it is <laughs> well it's, it's again it comes back to what we were saying right at the start it's about human connection mm. ultimately that's that's what it is um and not trying to force our humans into especially the humans we've got sort of responsibility for not trying to force them into boxes yeah no humans in boxes must <laughs> be the day Spotify fee, wasn't it? <laughs> Are there any humans in boxes <laughs> next week's? <laughs> <laughs> That's my flashy segue. Do, do you like it? <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. You learn from the master. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. What are we doing? Oh, God, what, are we, are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing next week? I'd... What we are going outside of the boundaries, Kirsty. Are we going outside of the box? We are. Um, yes, we are. 
next week we are talking about A Safe Girl to Love by Casey Plett and Freshwater by Akweki Amazi. Um, so yes, we're outside the box next week. No one in the box. No boxes here. No boxes. No gender binary. Nope. <laughs> Zero boxes. <laughs> I think I think we might have dug ourselves into a hole. A box, yeah, box-shaped hole. <laughs> a grave. We have dug our own grave. So. Before you come back for more of this, <laughs> you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts or follow us on Twitter, where we tweet equally insightful things <laughs> about boxes and digging our own graves. No, about books. <laughs> Kirsty is at the other Kirsty, and I am at Naomi Frisbee. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.